Alright, well with that in mind, let's get into a sort of a brand new two-week series we're getting into this morning called Why the Answer is a Mystery. We'll be looking at a couple of the, the mysteries of the Christian faith and attempting to speak to them. This morning actually our topic is, of all things, the Trinity. The Trinity. So let's get into our scripture passage and the passage on which the teaching is based. It's going to be from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and then 13 through 26. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And that's God's word this morning. Now, before we go any further, let me just say what I'm trying to do this morning. All right, What I'm trying to do for you is this. I'm trying to describe an impossible to describe mystery. Or in the words of theologian J.I. Packer, the historic doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. So in other words, if this makes no sense and you get nothing out of it today, don't blame me, blame God. All right, here we go. Really, though, why is this topic, this, this doctrine, so difficult? Well, one of the main challenges, perhaps the, the main challenge we have when it comes to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is that there's no one single passage that lays out the doctrine for us. The, the concept of the Trinity in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, the concept's always in the background, 
never in the foreground. The, the Trinity kind of functions like uh, the landmark, perhaps, uh, in, in the vacation photos that you took, sort of like the Empire State Building, or maybe the Eiffel Tower, or the Tower of London. It's always in the background. The picture really isn't of those things, but it's always there, just sort of behind what you're really taking a picture of. And so uh, that's the reason, again, it's sort of complicated. There's no one single text. But if there were one passage, one part of the Bible that gets us as close as we can to the Trinity, it's this one, which we read this morning in John 17. From this one passage, I believe we can get a number of broad hints into what the Trinity is and what it means for us. Let's ask this morning four questions of our passage and see what answers they give us. And as always, I'd like to encourage you to sort of take notes if you can. You're going to be going through a lot this morning. Maybe you'll get something out of this after all. Okay, four questions. Number one, what is the Trinity? Number two, what does it mean? Third, what's inside it? And finally, how can what's inside it be ours? You guys ready? Let's go. Here we go. Let's begin. Let's ask First of all, what is the Trinity? Well, we'll begin here in verse 1. Jesus said this. He looked toward heaven and prayed. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For he granted him authority over all people that he might give, what? Eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life. Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sinned. Well, what's going on here in this passage? Well, Jesus is praying here. He's near the end of his life. He's, he's taking the last supper with his disciples in the upper room. And he's praying that we would have eternal life, which is what, he said, really knowing God. He's saying this, and catch this, he's saying knowing God and knowing him. He's saying there is one God to know, the only one true God. And knowing God means this, knowing the Father and knowing the Son at the same time. Now, I told you it was tricky, all right? You're already confused, staring at me blankly a bit. Here, here's the point. Right away, as Jesus prays here, he's showing us that there's more than one person to God. And if you were to look one chapter earlier, actually in chapter 16, you would see Jesus reference the Holy Spirit as being of and from God. And Jesus summarizes all of this, the doctrine of the Trinity, and when he uses one word, which we read to describe the Trinity, he said this, he says, may they, that's us, also be in who? Us. Yeah. In other words, he's saying God is an us. God is an us. The one true God, the God of the Bible, he's saying, is an us. Plural. Another way of saying, seeing it is over actually in Matthew 28, 18, more commonly known as the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to, quote, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this would have just jumped off the page to the original reader and jumped out of Jesus' mouth to the original hearers. The original first century Jews would have been shocked by this statement. They would have gotten exactly what this means because of the Jews of Jesus' day, unlike our day. Someone's name wasn't just a word their parents gave them. No, their name represented the essence of who they were. In the Old Testament, for example, God changed Abram's name to what? Abraham, he changed Jacob's name to what? Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus changes Simon's name to what? Peter and changes Saul's name to what? Paul, why? Well, because of the ancient culture, a person's name was the essence of who they were, the summary of their being, the ultimate way 
of expressing the depths of a person's nature, character, and soul. And so what does Jesus here say? The essence, the character of who God is, what is he saying? Is the ultimate way of expressing who God is? Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice he doesn't say baptize them into the names, plural, of God, but into what? The name of God, right? One name, but three persons. Why? Because there's one God, and God, he's told us, is an us. God's an us. The doctrine of the Trinity says that there is one God in three persons. Now, right away I know what you're thinking here. You're thinking, God, okay, Morgan, he's kind of like... What I'm getting from you is he's kind of like the pie I had on Christmas. You know, there's like one slice for the Father, one slice for the Son, one slice for the Spirit. No, no, no. There's only one God in three persons. And all the persons are God and interpenetrate the other two. All right. Now you're saying I'm really confused. Now, Morgan, what is the Trinity? How can I grasp it? All right. C.S. Lewis said this. Imagine you... You live in a two-dimensional world, right? Up, down, left, right. And then a three-dimensional person came into your world. How could a person who was three-dimensional possibly explain to you what it was to have depth, what it would be like to have a third dimension. You now he said, if, a, if, if, if a someone who is two-dimensional came into your world, actually says, think of a cube, a cube in a two-dimensional world appears as what? A square. Its footprint in the sand, so to speak, looks like what? A square. Ah, but behind it, behind the square, is something we could never see coming. And here's the quote from your Christianity. He says, in God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being. Just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we cannot fully conceive of a being like that, just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube. But we can get a sort of faint notion of it. And when we do, we are then, for the first time in our lives, getting some positive idea, however faint, of something, I love this word, super personal. Something more than a person. It is something we can never have guessed. And yet, once we have been told, one almost feels we ought to have been able to guess it because it fits in so well with all the things we know already. See, God... The Trinity isn't us. And before I move on, let me just summarize and say this is how important this doctrine is. There are many things that the Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Greek Orthodox churches disagree on. Many things they don't see eye to eye on. And those things are important. But one thing all Christians have always agreed on is this, that God is an us. If you take this away, now you twist Christianity into something unrecognizable. If God is unipersonal, you only have one person. Now you have the God of Islam. If God has no persons, now there's pantheism. Everything's God. If God has three separate gods, now you have polytheism. If God only appears as the Father, who turns into the Son, who turns into the Spirit, that's modalism. If the Father is really the one in charge and the other two just sort of submit to him, that's subordinationism. But that's not this. This is Trinitarianism. This Trinitarianism is the foundation of Christianity. God is in us. Three persons who know and love each other. Without this, the Bible falls apart. So that's what, number one, the Trinity is. But now we have to ask, we have to ask this, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? How can we apply this? All right, let me give you 
since you asked, three quick implications of what this truth means for you and me in this church today. First, here's what the Trinity means for us. First, it means this, that love is more important than success. The Trinity means love is more important than success. St. Augustine, who actually sort of founded Trinitarian thought, he asked the question, it's a good question. He asked, why did God make the world? It's hmm? a good question, right? Ask that in promised land more often, I think. Why did God make the world? And he noted that your view of God not only determines that answer, but also determines the meaning of your life. If God is only, here, this unipersonal, one person, the God of Islam, now that person, that God, could not have been love in his essence because true love is something only shared between multiple persons. If God is only one person, unipersonal, that God could, could have made, possibly, the universe out of loneliness, out of a need to be served, out of a need to exercise power, but he could not have made it out of love. But, but, if a triune God has existed from all eternity, then God has never been lonely. God's never needed someone. He has always been love. He made the universe out of love. And therefore, love is the ultimate reality. Can you see God himself, the Trinity tells us, is a kind of loving family where love comes before work. Love comes before anything was ever made. And therefore, if you today, when a person becomes a workaholic, when a person puts all their weight and their meaning into their career and their work, they're going against the grain and the fabric of reality. The Trinity means that relationships, friendships, family, love are more important than career. But in America, we get this backward. We say the opposite. We say, no, no, career and work. I mean, that's what's really important. And family is going to have to take a backseat. But let me just have you, encourage you with a really depressing thought experiment for a moment. Flash forward to your deathbed. What's going to be there in the last moments and days of your life? Hmm? Will your career... Be there to wipe the drool off your face. Change your bedpan. Hmm? Give you your medicines, right? Will you say in the last moments of your life, get my family away from me. Children be gone. Spouse, flee. What I really want is to go back to my cubicle for one more day. No, 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 no. What will you be asking for? What will you be longing for? What's most important? Your family, your loved ones. Your spouse, see, the Trinity means and shows us what we all know to be true. Love, family, relationships are more important than success and must come before our work. Let me ask you, are you too busy even in a local church to build relationships, to make connections and foster those? If so, you're not living Trinitarian life. Secondly, here's the second implication of the Trinity, that diversity is at the heart of God. Diversity is at the heart of God. Can you see how different and unique the three persons of the Trinity are? There's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unbelievably unique and yet absolutely one. And let me just show you for a minute, if I could, how the diversity of the per- why the diversity of the person of God, of the person of God, is essential to your life. If all you have in your life or all you focus on is the person of the Father, God the Father, you'll become too authoritarian, too dogmatic, too self-righteous. You'll become a Pharisee, focused exclusively on right and wrong. But if all you have in your life or all you focus on 
is the person of the Spirit, you'll have no boundaries. No one to dig into your life and to tell you what to do at times, to tell you this is just how it's going to be. You'll chase experience endlessly. You won't be a Pharisee, no. You'll be a mystic. But if all you have in your life or all you focus on is the person of the Son, you may feel good about what God says about you, how God loves you, Jesus loves you, that you're forgiven, you feel affirmed and free, but without the Spirit to compel you and empower you to go into all the world, you won't be a Pharisee, you won't be a mystic, you will be a Christian slacker. (laughs) Or if you'll forgive me for a moment, the average American churchgoer. But, but, If you have a father giving boundaries, a son giving grace, and a spirit giving power, now can you see, you've got a dynamic, pulsing, throbbing kind of God turning you into something you could never be without the other two persons. And therefore, therefore, our need for the diversity within God shows us our need for diversity within the church. Why? Because diversity shapes us into a more complete picture of who God is. If all you have in your life are relationships with people of the same color, the same age, the same ethnic background, the same interests, you fall short of Trinitarian life, which is inherently diverse. I'm so glad my children are growing up in this environment, a diverse ethnic environment. I never had that as a child. Many of you never had that either. My children, though, cannot imagine it any other way, and aren't we glad? But, hear this, we don't pursue ethnic diversity just because ethnic diversity is good. We pursue it and live it out because it's better than good. It's deeper than good. We pursue diversity because it's within the very heart and nature of God himself. It's at the heart of the gospel, church. We need it. Number three, humble service, third application. Humble service is the pathway to authentic spirituality. Humble service is the pathway to authentic spirituality. Now we'll look at what this means more in just a moment. But when we look inside the Trinity, you see Jesus saying things like this. Father, glorify your son that your son can glorify you. Let me ask you now. Do you know what it means to glorify something? It means to make something bigger than you. It means that something shines more brightly than you. Jesus here is saying, God, make me the star so that I can in turn make you the star. Make me shine brightly, so that I can in turn make you shine more brightly than me. Oh, let me ask you, is this how your relationship with God works? Hmm? Is he bigger than you, or are you bigger than him? You'll notice that when God made man in the beginning, he didn't say, excuse me, he said, worship me alone, right? He didn't say the alternative was just worshiping nothing, right? He said, no, worship me alone. Why? Because the human heart is hardwired to worship something. Here's what this means. Do you know why that you struggle with criticism if you do or with your appearance? Here's this. It's, here's why. Because you've made you the center. You've made you bigger than God. You, take, you can't take criticism because people's words to you outweigh God's word about you, right? If, but if God's word is what you've glorified, made bigger and brighter than you, oh, then guess what? You can handle successes and failures equally. Things can roll right off your back. Is this, is this pathway how your relationship with God works? Secondly, is this how your relationship with your spouse works? Uh Uh-oh. 
Does it flow through this pathway of humble service? And there's a story I like to tell here because I think it illustrates this principle accurately. Early on in our marriage, when Carrie and I had been married about three years, and I knew instinctively at the three-year mark I was a great husband. There's no external, you know, quantitative evidence for that. Every man just knows this instinctively. Am I right, men? Unfortunately, yes. Because, of course, after all, it's me. In the middle of all my expertness, we had a baby. We had our first son, uh, Jude. And then four months later, Carrie was pregnant again with our second son, Jack. I said four months later. Maybe you, you caught that. And then, but still, my level of expectation of service remained at an all-time high. I would let her take care of the baby during the night to make sure I had a good night's rest to go out and provide uh, for the family the next day. Then I'd come home from work looking for, you know, dinner uh, and, and a clean home because, you know, those things just happen on their own like magic when I'm gone. And anyway, I remember one night I'd gotten home from work and my pregnant wife with the newborn baby was cooking dinner and we finished eating and I settled down on the sofa to recover from the strenuous activity of eating a meal that had been prepared for me. And uh, I left her to do the dishes again. Now, because you are a very smart person, you can tell this is not going to end well for me, and it didn't. Why don't you ever do the dishes? She hissed at me from the kitchen. I, <laughs> I do do the dishes, I said in response. I never tell you no when you ask me. She said, well, that's just the problem. I'm always having to ask you to do them. You never look to do them or ask me if I need help. She says, what's that thing you're always telling those college students? At the time, I was a uh, minister with college students. She says, what's that thing you're always telling your students? Hmm, see the need and take the lead. You're not seeing the need or taking the lead. Why don't you start being a leader in your own home? (laughs) Story, yeah. You know what? She was right as she always is. Lesson learned. All right. I was insisting someone serve me, right? I thought the way up was up. But Trinitarian life shows us the way up is down. Is humble service how your relationship with God works, with your spouse works? Is this how your relationship with the church works? Do you only come here looking for it to glorify you, make you bigger, make you better, to meet your needs, or do you look to, long to make God's church, not a pastor, not a staff, but God's church, bigger than you? In other words, do you come here looking for what you can get out of it or what you can give to it. See, humble service is the pathway to authentic spirituality. Trinitarian life shows us this. People can move around from church to church all the time, always finding fault with the music, with the facilities, what their kids get or don't get, and all those things are important. They're important. But let me just suggest, what's more important than what you get from a church is far less important than what you give to God's church. And whether or not you're actually living out the meaning of the Trinity. Good sermons and nice lights are not at the heart of the Trinity. But humble service is. And if that is true, and that's how life truly works, it demands we ask this question. Number three now. Let's ask, finally, what's inside? What's inside the Trinity? What could be inside the Trinity? that can make all those things be true. What's inside it 
that could prompt Jesus to say, Oh God, everything in my life is from you. Everything I have is from you. Now let's go a step further. And let me ask you this. What could, catch this, at every moment in his life, compel Jesus to want to get away in solitude? Why would he pray at every moment things like this? Oh, Father, I just want everyone to see what you and I are like, what we have together. What's he doing in those moments? hmm? Oh, he's showing us what's inside the Trinity. So let's ask, what's inside it? If you could peel back the external layer of God, if that's even possible, what would you see inside? What's the mystery of it? Well, thankfully, Jesus shows us this in verse 24. It's so beautiful. He says, his father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me. When? Before the creation of the world. See, we are being told here that there is an ancient and almost incomprehensible love that from all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been, been pouring into each other's hearts in degrees and perfect amounts beyond our comprehension. See, In other words, inside God is pure joy, pure ecstasy, pure happiness. Why is this? Because when you love someone, you truly love someone. I've got that song from Chicago in my head now. Sorry, when you love someone. All right. What do you do? You you pour love into their heart, right? You lose yourself in loving them the best. Friendships are the ones in which you're not worried about what the other person's going to get you for your birthday. You're thinking about what can I get them for their birthday, right? The best kind of intimacy in marriage is when you don't look for your spouse to please you, but you lose yourself in pleasing your spouse. And what we have inside the Trinity are three persons who do not demand love, nor do we have three persons who only give love in some kind of a crazy martyrdom deal? No. But they are giving and receiving love in perfect amounts and degrees over an infinite period of time. No wonder Jesus was always going away to pray. No wonder he always fought for time to pray. What was he doing? Oh, getting back inside the Trinity. Getting back into the very center of rapture and delight and joy going back inside his heart's true home. He was going back into the thing all our hearts long for. Really, and literally, the place from which we all came. But, but, there's a problem. Because the story the Bible tells us from the very beginning of the book of Genesis is this, that humanity, all people, have been cut off from that. Cut off through their own sin, through their own choices, their own selfishness, self-worship. We've been cut off. But we long to get back inside our hearts, true home. And every lesser pleasure is a pursuit of that. So let's ask now, how can we? How can we get this beautiful and ancient love? How can we get back into the heart of the Trinity? Let's ask, number four, how how can what's inside it be ours? Let's go back to verse one. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Now, you may know that in the Gospel of John, the word hour is a technical term that means the time of Jesus' death. Jesus was always talking about his hour, wasn't he? He said at the wedding in Cana in John 2, my hour is not yet come. Later on, he says an hour is coming. And now here in John 17, at the end of his life, he says the hour has come. The hour has come. On the eve of his betrayal and crucifixion, he's saying the time 
for everything I came to do is coming upon me. Now, Father, in my death, let your glory pass into me. Now, at first you may be thinking, oh, I know what this means. It means Jesus is saying he's going to die a horrible and painful and, and shameful death. And after all of that, after he dies and after he's resurrected, when he ascends, then the Father's glory will be expressed and revealed. But that's not what he's saying here, is it? No, no, no. What's he saying? He's saying, in my hour now, in my betrayal now, in my humbling, in my beating, in my torture, in my crucifixion, that's where God's glory will shine and be revealed the brightest, not in spite of my death, but through my death, through my death, in the midst of my death, God's glory will be revealed. Jesus is saying the greatest example of God's glory will be shown in a death on the cross. And it was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity and the Son of God, died a death of horror and shame. But we should ask, how could he do this? How could he do this? Put it like this. Because he had always been doing this. He had been doing this for forever. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this from the problem of pain. He says this. It's so beautiful. This quote has changed my life. He says, In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm of all creation and all being. For the eternal word gives himself in mortal sacrifice. And that not only on Calvary. For when he was crucified on Calvary, he did that. In the wild weather of his outlying provinces, what he had done at home in great glory and gladness. From before the foundation of the world, Christ surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. Did you catch that? See, on the cross, oh, it's so beautiful. Jesus was doing in the wild weather of his outlying provinces what he had been doing at home in great glory and gladness for beyond before, before creation. Now, do you see how the Trinity helps us understand the cross? Jesus could do this now because he had done it before. It's all, it was different, yes, but in a sense the same. He could surrender himself now because he'd been doing it an infinite amount of times in eternity, lowering himself, taking the lower place. See, the glory of the triune God doesn't come after the cross or is in spite of the cross. No, it's displayed in the shame of the cross. And it means two things for you right now. First, it means there is no greater cost that God could have paid for you. See, now, maybe, perhaps, in the light of the Trinity, we get a dim hint of what Jesus meant on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the love, glory, joy, happiness, which had always been there for him in this moment, in his greatest agony, simply vanished. Jesus Christ, light of life, very God of very God, was utterly cast out and abandoned by his father and his family. See, no one here has ever been through something like that. You may, I know many of you have been through difficult times and pain and loss and terrible things. I don't want to diminish that or downgrade that in any way. But no one here has ever experienced this. Infinite abandonment from ultimate love. None of us have experienced that. Now, why is this? Why did God pay this cost? Here's why. Secondly, because you needed it. 
You needed this. You need to look at the shame of the cross. God giving himself up to bring you back. This is the gospel, which is both humbling and liberating. It's humbling because it says Jesus had to die for you. For you. This had to happen. You are so, hear this, bad and wicked and lost apart from him that nothing else could have saved you. But it also says you are of infinite worth. Infinite worth. Think about this. The Trinity gave itself up to get you back. Oh, Why? So that what's inside the Trinity can now be yours. An eternal and ancient love today poured into your heart. How could this be? Oh, the same way it was shown for us. The giving up of self. Our culture says the opposite. What's most important about your life is that you're happy, right? You're happy. What's most important is that you feel good about you. Life's all about your happiness. And honestly, this is why I believe in large part, although our generation is the, the wealthiest in the history of the world, we have a higher standard of living than almost anyone else in the history of planet Earth and the universe but we're more depressed and suicidal than at any other moment in our nation's history. Why is this? It's because the self cannot bear the weight of itself. The self was meant to be abdicated, given up. Only through this, the Trinity shows us, can you really be happy? Look, in the Trinity, the way up is down. The way up is down. But if you'll do this today, if you'll surrender your life today, this ancient love can be yours. can be yours. But as good as that is, it's even better than you think. Final thought. Ask how is this? Oh, because of one last hint that Jesus drops for us right here. Not just about our present with him, but about our future. He said this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. What does this all mean? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But I think it means this, which Jesus also said back in verse 16. One day, one day, we'll be in the Trinity, will be with the Trinity, not in an Eastern merging with the divine consciousness kind of way, but in a way that penetrates every fiber of our being, in a way that brings delight and joy and pleasure to our senses and our soul. One day, Jesus is showing us, we will be welcomed forever into the heart of the Trinity itself. And once more, C.S. Lewis put it better than anyone, what that moment will be like when we see him with our own eyes, when we're accepted and welcomed forever into it, he says this, quote, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is, and someday, God willing, we shall get in. Let's pray this morning as we close. Oh, Father, we come now to you. Lord, I thank you for these truths, Lord, for your word, what you've come to show us. Well, that reality is even greater than we could ever have hoped for, that God is greater than we could ever have hoped for. Thank you for all these truths. Lord, but I thank you for the most important one of eternal life, that we can know you. We can know you. 
we can know you. Lord, I'm praying for our hearts this morning. As we've heard this, we would be touched and moved to respond in Jesus' name.